0: Chapter nine of the sea wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The sea wolf by Jack London. Chapter nine. Three days of rest. Three blessed days of rest are what I had with Wolf Larsen, eating at the cabin table and doing nothing but discuss life, literature and the universe, the while Thomas Mugridge fumed and raged and did my work as well as his own. "'Watch out for squalls, is all I can say to you,' was Lewis's warning, given during a spare half-hour on deck while Wolf Larsen was engaged in straightening out a row among the hunters. "'Ye can't tell what'll be happenin,' Lewis went on, in response to my query for more definite information. "'The man's as contrary as air-currents or water-currents. "'You can never guess the ways of him.' "'Tis just as you're thinking you know him and are making a favourable slant along him "'that he whirls around dead ahead and comes howling down upon you "'and a-ripping all of your fine-weather sails to rags. "'So I was not altogether surprised when the squall foretold by Lewis smote me. "'We had been having a heated discussion upon life, of course, and, grown overbold, i was passing stiff strictures upon wolf larsen and the life of wolf larsen in fact i was vivisecting him and turning over his soul stuff as keenly and as thoroughly as it was his custom to do it to others it may be a weakness of mine that i have an incisive way of speech but i threw all restraint to the winds and cut and slashed until the whole man of him was snarling The dark sun-bronze of his face went black with wrath, his eyes were ablaze. There was no clearness or sanity in them, nothing but the terrific rage of a madman. It was the wolf in him that I saw, and a mad wolf at that. He sprang for me with a half-roar gripping my arm. I had steeled myself to brazen it out, though I was trembling inwardly but the enormous strength of the man was too much for my fortitude he had gripped me by the biceps with his single hand and when that grip tightened i wilded and shrieked aloud my feet went out from under me i simply could not stand upright and endure the agony the muscles refused their duty the pain was too great my bicep was being crushed to a pulp he seemed to recover himself for a lucid gleam came into his eyes and he relaxed his hold with a short laugh that was more like a growl i fell to the floor feeling very faint while he sat down lighted his cigar and watched me as a cat watches a mouse As I writhed about I could see in his eyes that curiosity I had so often noted, that wonder and perplexity, that questing, that everlasting query of his as to what it was all about. I finally crawled to my feet and ascended the companion stairs. Fair weather was over, and there was nothing left but to return to the galley. My left arm was numb, as though paralyzed, and days passed before I could use it while weeks went by before the last stiffness and pain went out of it. And he had done nothing but put his hand upon my arm and squeeze. There had been no wrenching or jerking. He had just closed his hand with a steady pressure. What he might have done I did not fully realize till next day, when he put his head into the galley and, as a sign of renewed friendliness, asked me how my hand was getting on. It might have been worse, he smiled. I was peeling potatoes. He picked one up from the pan. It was fair-sized, firm, and unpeeled. He closed his hand upon it, squeezed, and the potato squirted out between his fingers in mushy streams. The pulpy remnant he dropped back into the pan and turned away, and I had a sharp vision of how it might have fared with me had the monster put his real strength upon me but the three days rest was good in spite of it all for it had given my knee the very chance it needed it felt much better the swelling had materially decreased and the cap seemed descending into its proper place also the three days rest brought the trouble i had foreseen it was plainly thomas mugridge's intention to make me pay for those three days he treated me vilely cursed me continually and heaped his own work upon me he even ventured to raise his fist to me but i was becoming animal like myself and i snarled in his face so terribly that it must have frightened him back it is no pleasant picture i can conjure up of myself humphrey van wyden in that noisome ship's galley CROUCHED IN A CORNER OVER MY TASK, MY FACE RAISED TO THE FACE OF THE CREATURE ABOUT TO STRIKE ME, MY LIPS LIFTED AND SNARLING LIKE A DOGS, MY EYES GLEAMING WITH FEAR AND HELPLESSNESS AND THE COURAGE THAT COMES OF FEAR AND HELPLESSNESS. I DO NOT LIKE THE PICTURE. IT REMINDS ME TOO STRONGLY OF A RAT IN A TRAP. I DO NOT CARE TO THINK OF IT, BUT IT WAS elective FOR THE THREATENED BLOW DID NOT DESCEND. Thomas Mugridge backed away, glaring as hatefully and viciously as I glared. A pair of beasts is what we were, penned together and showing our teeth. He was a coward, afraid to strike me because I had not quailed sufficiently in advance, so he chose a new way to intimidate me. There was only one galley knife that, as a knife, amounted to anything. This, through many years of service and wear, had acquired a long, lean blade. It was unusually cruel-looking, and at first I had shuddered every time I used it. The cook borrowed a stone from Johansson and proceeded to sharpen the knife. He did it with great ostentation, glancing significantly at me the while. He whetted it up and down all day long. Every odd moment he could find he had the knife and stone out and was whetting away. THE STEEL ACQUIRED A RAZOR EDGE. HE TRIED IT WITH THE BALL OF HIS THUMB OR ACROSS THE NAIL. HE SHAVED HAIRS FROM THE BACK OF HIS HAND, GLANCED ALONG THE EDGE WITH MICROSCOPIC ACUTENESS, AND FOUND, OR feigned THAT HE FOUND, ALWAYS, A SLIGHT INEQUALITY IN HIS EDGE SOMEWHERE. THEN HE WOULD PUT IT ON STONE AGAIN AND WET, 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 TILL I COULD HAVE LAUGHED ALOUD, IT WAS SO VERY LUDICROUS. It was also serious, for I learned that he was capable of using it, that under all his cowardice there was a courage of cowardice, like mine, that would impel him to do the very thing his whole nature protested against doing, and was afraid of doing. Cookie sharpening his knife for hump was being whispered about among the sailors, and some of them twitted him about it. This he took in good part, and was really pleased nodding his head with direful foreknowledge and mystery until george leach the erstwhile cabin boy ventured some rough pleasantry on the subject now it happened that leach was one of the sailors told off to douse mugridge after his game of cards with the captain leach had evidently done his task with a thoroughness that mugridge had not forgiven for words followed and evil names involving smirched ancestries mugridge menaced with the knife he was sharpening for me leach laughed and hurled more of his telegraph hill Billingsgate, and before either he or i knew what had happened his right arm had been ripped open from elbow to wrist with a quick slash of the knife the cook backed away a fiendish expression on his face the knife held before him in a position of defense but leach took it quite calmly "'though blood was spurting upon the deck as generously as water from a fountain. "'I'm going to get you, Cookie,' he said, "'and I'll get you hard, and I won't be in no hurry about it. "'You'll be without that knife when I come for you.' "'So saying, he turned and walked quietly forward. "'Mugridge's face was livid with fear at what he had done "'and what he might expect sooner or later from the man he had stabbed.' But his demeanour toward me was more ferocious than ever. In spite of his fear at the reckoning he must expect to pay for what he had done, he could see that it had been an object-lesson to me, and he became more domineering and exultant. Also there was a lust in him, akin to madness, which had come from the sight of the blood he had drawn. He was beginning to see red in whatever direction he looked. THE PSYCHOLOGY OF IT IS SADLY TANGLED, AND YET I COULD READ THE WORKINGS OF HIS MIND AS CLEARLY AS THOUGH IT WERE A PRINTED BOOK. SEVERAL DAYS WENT BY, THE GHOST STILL FOAMING DOWN THE TRADES, AND I COULD SWEAR I SAW THE MADNESS GROWING IN THOMAS MUGRIDGE'S EYES, AND I confess THAT I BECAME AFRAID, VERY MUCH AFRAID. WET, WET, WET. IT WENT ALL DAY LONG. The look in his eyes as he felt the keen edge and glared at me was positively carnivorous. I was afraid to turn my shoulder to him and when I left the galley I went out backwards to the amusement of the sailors and hunters who made a point of gathering in groups to witness my exit. The strain was too great. I sometimes thought my mind would give way under it-a meet thing on this ship of madmen and brutes every hour every minute of my existence was in jeopardy i was a human soul in distress and yet no soul fore or aft betrayed sufficient sympathy to come to my aid at times i thought of throwing myself on the mercy of wolf larsen but the vision of the mocking devil in his eyes that questioned life and sneered at it would come strong upon me and compel me to refrain at other times I seriously contemplated suicide, and the whole force of my hopeful philosophy was required to keep me from going over the side in the darkness of night. Several times Wolf Larsen tried to inveigle me into discussion, but I gave him short answers and eluded him. Finally he commanded me to resume my seat at the cabin table for a time and let the cook do my work. Then I spoke frankly telling him what I was enduring from Thomas Mugridge because of the three days of favoritism which had been shown me. Wolf Larsen regarded me with smiling eyes. "'So you're afraid, eh?' he sneered. "'Yes,' I said defiantly and honestly, "'I am afraid.' "'That's the way with you fellows,' he cried half angrily, "'sentimentalizing about your immortal souls and afraid to die.' at sight of a sharp knife and a cowardly cockney the clinging of life to life overcomes all your fond foolishness why my dear fellow you will live forever you are a god and god cannot be killed cooky cannot hurt you you are sure of your resurrection what's there to be afraid of You have eternal life before you. You are a millionaire in immortality and a millionaire whose fortune cannot be lost, whose fortune is less perishable than the stars and is lasting as space or time. It is impossible for you to diminish your principle. Immortality is a thing without beginning or end. Eternity is eternity and though you die here and now you will go on living somewhere else and hereafter. And it is all very beautiful, the shaking off of the flesh and soaring of the imprisoned spirit. Cookie cannot hurt you. He can only give you a boost on the path you eternally must tread. Or if you do not wish to be boosted just yet, why not boost Cookie? According to your ideas, he too must be an immortal millionaire. You cannot bankrupt him. His paper will always circulate at par. YOU CANNOT DIMINISH THE LENGTH OF HIS LIVING BY KILLING HIM, FOR HE IS WITHOUT BEGINNING OR END. HE'S BOUND TO GO ON LIVING SOMEWHERE, SOMEHOW. THEN BOOST HIM, STICK A KNIFE IN HIM, AND LET HIS SPIRIT FREE. AS IT IS, IT'S IN A NASTY PRISON, AND YOU'LL DO HIM ONLY A KINDNESS BY BREAKING DOWN THE DOOR. AND WHO KNOWS, IT MAY BE A VERY BEAUTIFUL SPIRIT THAT WILL GO SOARING UP INTO THE BLUE FROM THAT UGLY carcass. Boost him along, and I'll promote you to his place, and he's getting forty-five dollars a month. It was plain that I could look for no help or mercy from Wolf Larsen. Whatever was to be done I must do for myself, and out of the courage of fear I evolved the plan of fighting Thomas Mugridge with his own weapons. I borrowed a whetstone from Johansen. Lewis, the boat-steer, had already begged me for condensed milk and sugar. The lazarette, where such delicacies were stored, was situated beneath the cabin floor. Watching my chance, I stole five cans of the milk, and at night, when it was Lewis's watch on deck, I traded them with him for a dirk as lean and cruel-looking as Thomas Mugridge's vegetable knife. It was rusty and dull, but I turned the grindstone while Lewis gave it an edge. I slept more soundly than usual that night. Next morning, after breakfast, Thomas Mugridge began his wet, wet, wet. I glanced warily at him, for I was on my knees taking the ashes from the stove. When I returned from throwing them overside, he was talking to Harrison, whose honest yokel's face was filled with fascination and wonder yes mugridge was saying and what does his worship do but give me two years in reading but blimey if i cared the other mug was fixed plenty should have seen him knife just like this i stuck it in like into soft butter and the why he squealed was better than a two-penny gaff he shot a glance in my direction to see if i was taking it in and went on I didn't mean it, Tommy, he was snifflin', so help me God, I didn't mean it. I'll fix your bloody well right, I says, and kept right after him. I cut him to ribbons, that's what I did, and he a squealin' all the time. Once he got his ant on the knife and tried to hold it, had his fingers around it, but I pulled it through cuttin' to the bone. Oh, e was a sight, I can tell yer A call from the mate interrupted the gory narrative, and Harrison went aft. Mugridge sat down on the raised threshold of the galley, and went on with his knife sharpening. I put the shovel away, and calmly sat down on the coal-box facing him. He favored me with a vicious stare. Still calmly, though my heart was going pit-a-pat, I pulled out Lewis's dirk, and began to wet it on the stone. I had looked for almost any sort of explosion on the cockney's part, but to my surprise he did not appear aware of what I was doing. He went on wetting his knife. So did I. And for two hours we sat there, face to face, wet, 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 till the news of it spread abroad and half the ship's company was crowding the galley doors to see the sight. Encouragement and advice were freely tendered, and Jock Horner, the quiet, self-spoken hunter, who looked as though he would not harm a mouse, advised me to leave the ribs alone and to thrust upward for the abdomen, at the same time giving what he called the Spanish twist to the blade. Leach, his bandaged arm prominently to the fore, begged me to leave a few remnants of the cook for him and wolf larsen paused once or twice at the break of the poop to glance curiously at what must have been to him a stirring and crawling of the yeasty thing he knew as life and i make free to say that for the time being life assumed the same sordid value to me there was nothing pretty about it nothing divine only two cowardly moving things that sat wetting steel upon stone and a group of other moving things cowardly and otherwise that looked on half of them i am sure were anxious to see us shedding each other's blood it would have been entertainment and i do not think there was one who would have interfered had we closed in a death struggle on the other hand the whole thing was laughable and childish wet 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 humphrey van wyden sharpening his knife in a ship's galley "'and trying its edge with his thumb. "'Of all situations this was the most inconceivable. "'I knew that my own kind could not have believed it possible. "'I had not been called Sissy Van Weyden all my days without reason, "'and that Sissy Van Weyden should be capable of doing this thing "'was a revelation to Humphrey Van Weyden, "'who knew not whether to be exultant or ashamed. "'But nothing happened.' At the end of two hours, Thomas Mugridge put away knife and stone and held out his hand. What's the good of makin a ole show of ourselves for them mugs? He demanded. They don't love us, and bloody well glad they'd be a seen us cuttin our throats. You're not arf bad, ump. You've got spunk as you yanks sigh, and I like your in a way. So come on and shike coward that i might be i was less a coward than he it was a distinct victory i had gained and i refused to forego any of it by shaking his detestable hand all right he said pridelessly take it or leave it i'll like you none the less for it and to save his face he turned fiercely upon the onlookers get out of my galley doors you bloomin swabs This command was reinforced by a steaming kettle of water, and at sight of it the sailors scrambled out of the way. This was a sort of a victory for Thomas Mugridge, and enabled him to accept more gracefully the defeat I had given him, though of course he was too discreet to attempt to drive the hunters away. "'I see Cookies finished,' I heard Smoke say to Horner. "'You bet,' was the reply. "'Hump runs the galley from now on, and Cookie pulls in his horns.' Mugridge heard and shot a swift glance at me, "'but I gave no sign that the conversation had reached me. "'I had not thought my victory was so far-reaching and complete, "'but I resolved to let go nothing I had gained. "'As the days went by, Smoke's prophecy was verified.' The cockney became more humble and slavish to me than even to Wolf Larsen. I mistered him and served him no longer, washed no more greasy pots, and peeled no more potatoes. I did my own work and my own work only, and when and in what fashion I saw fit. Also I carried the dirk in a sheath at my hip, sailor fashion, and maintained towards Thomas Mugridge a constant attitude which was composed of equal parts of domineering, insult, and contempt. End of chapter 9